El Fanboy, episode 32. Everybody, Mario Francisco Robles MFR here with you, and this is the 32nd edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. Jesus Christ, who would have ever thunk it? In a year that gave us the climactic ending to Hugh Jackman's 17-year run as Wolverine, as well as the hotly anticipated sequel to the surprise smash Guardians of the Galaxy and an absolutely exceptional Wonder Woman. Who would have predicted that the biggest superhero film of the year would be the second Spider-Man reboot in a five-year span? That's right, my friend. Spider-Man Homecoming did something unheard of in these last few weeks. It crawled its way up the charts using heroic international numbers and currently sits at $874.3 million. All right, that's $11 million more than Guardians 2, $54 million more than Wonder Woman, and we won't even get into how much more than Logan that is. It's unbelievable. International audiences ate this thing up, proving that Spider-Man is still low-key the king of superhero box office. Do you guys remember when Sam Raimi's Spider-Man films were the biggest things in Hollywood at the turn of the century? Most thought that era was over. Between the lackluster, you know, Mark Webb reboot, and then the rush to reboot it again with a third actor now playing Peter Parker, it, it seemed like the world was ready to move on from good old Spidey. But as it turns out, as long as the movie is good, people will still come out to see it. Fatigue be damned. And just to put this into perspective for you, not only is Homecoming the biggest superhero flick of the year to date, but this second reboot of Spider-Man just surpassed Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice this week. That's right, you heard correctly. The second Spider-Man reboot in a span of five years has outgrossed the first ever appearance of Superman Batman, and Wonder Woman on the big screen. Spidey, with an assist from Iron Man, trumps the Trinity, apparently. It's just crazy. I never saw this coming. If you did, then you're a much smarter person than I am. And what's going to be fascinating to watch, by the way, come November, is whether Thor Ragnarok or even Justice League can top Spider-Man Homecoming. I know it sounds insane to even question that, but let's just look at the numbers for a second. No Thor movie has ever grossed more than 645 million bucks, okay? The first one made 450, the second one 644. So do we think Ragnarok is going to do 240 million dollars more than the last Thor flick? I that's a stretch and I don't I don't see it happening. And none of the current DC movies has cracked $875 million worldwide. It just hasn't happened yet. While I think there's a chance that Justice League gets up close to a billion, assuming that the reviews are really strong and then fans embrace it uh, much more ardently than they did um, Batman v Superman last year, uh, just based on the track record, there's an actual possibility that it does stall out around the same number that Batman v Superman did. And if that were to happen, Homecoming would end up the king of superheroes at the box office in 2017. And then all those doubts people had about Sony and Marvel working together and whether or not it was smart to reboot the property so quickly and if Sony has any fucking clue what it's doing, all those arguments will go right out the window. Until January 1st, when we go back to crapping all over Sony again. But it's just, it, it, it's, it's unfathomable. I mean, who's, who saw this coming? Who saw this coming? If you knew it, te- yeah, please tweet me. I want to know that you predicted that Homecoming was going to suddenly be one of the biggest grocers in recent history. 
especially with some of the other you know, huge tent poles that are that have come out around it. Um, and while we're on this subject, a listener sent in a question related to this, which I'll address now. The question essentially was, why did Wonder Woman stall out? You know, she mopped the floor with Homecoming stateside. You know, her film to date has made 80 million more than Homecoming domestically. And that's a big deal because studios get a higher chunk of domestic sales than they do foreign sales. So Warner Brothers is riding high on Wonder Woman's success here in North America. But why did foreign audiences not embrace her as strongly? Foreign audiences showed up for Batman v Superman to the tune of $542 million. They showed up to Suicide Squad to the tune of $420 million. And that film didn't even have nearly as long of a theatrical run as Wonder Woman has had, because it's still in theaters, mind you. And that's what makes Wonder Woman's foreign total of 408 very intriguing. I think the answer comes down to good old-fashioned conservatism. I think certain regions just aren't as hip to the idea of a strong female protagonist beating up a bunch of guys as others are. Here's some data for you. In certain markets, like the UK, Mexico, Australia, both Suicide Squad and Wonder Woman did comparable numbers. Hell, in China, Wonder Woman dwarfed Suicide Squad, nearly doubling its totals there. It did like 90 in China, whereas Suicide Squad had done like 45 in China. But in others, Russia pitched in $25 million for Suicide Squad, but only $8 million bucks for Wonder Woman. That's a third, less than a third. Germany did $15 million for Suicide Squad, but only half of that for Wonder Woman. Italy spent $13 million on Suicide Squad, but only $3 million bucks on Wonder Woman. Now, look, I'm not uh, passing judgment on those countries. Um, I'm just reporting data. And I don't know. It just, to me, it seems like there is some sort of cultural thing here. I think countries that are a little more on the conservative side... Uh, just weren't feeling the whole superheroine angle. That, and of course we got to remember, Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad were very embattled movies. They were divisive. Audiences responded in a very subdued way, and critics pretty much hated them. So you also have to factor in that certain markets where perhaps superhero movies aren't the end-all, be-all events that they are here in the States, simply decided... You disappointed me for all of 2016. I'm not going back for another DC film for a while. Um, So I think it's a combination of those two things. But I do feel in my gut that just certain, you know, certain cultures, and this is not a judgment, you know, this is just the way it is, I think. Um, I think certain cultures, certain societies were not really uh, feeling the whole idea of, uh, of having a superheroine. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and move on from this subject before I get into some kind of trouble. So here we go. Let's get into this week's news. Let's get it all going as we always do with the box office. Now, did I call it or what, folks? Last week... There was all kinds of predictions getting thrown around for Kingsman the Golden Circle. Some were saying 45 million. Hell, towards the end of the week, the initial projections were 50 million. People were talking about this film doing exceedingly, exceedingly well. Uh, If you'll recall last week, I said, I don't see that happening. There's just something I can feel coming in the air tonight. Uh, I just had a feeling. I'm like... This film is going to struggle to get past 39 million. If it hits 40, I'll be surprised. But I'm, you know, a part of me just says this thing is going to stall out around 39 or 40. Well, what do you know? Uh, as the weekend receipts came in, they, the, the, you know, the projections kept dropping and dropping. So, like I said, as, as of Thursday, after the Thursday totals came in, they were saying 50 million. 
Then it dropped to like 45 million. Then by Sunday, certain sites were saying 40, certain sites were saying 39. Now that it is Tuesday, the actuals are in. King's Min made 39,023,010 bucks. Not a bad total at all, mind you. This is still, you know, this this surpasses what the first Kingsman did. I think I believe off the top of my head, the first Kingsman opened to around 36. So they made three million more dollars. Um, but yeah, I you know, I, I just I had a feeling. I could see it. I could see it. I could just sense it. So you know, it literally just barely scratched past 39 million. Uh, I contributed to its gross last night. Last night, I had a chance to go see it for myself. And boy, was I disappointed. I hate to break it to you. Um, you know, I, was, I went into that movie ready to love it. You know, I adored the first Kingsman. I enjoyed it. I defended it where most people, you know, complained that it was sort of crass and vulgar and sort of, you know, childish to a certain extent. Uh, I thought Kingsman was a blast. I had such a great time seeing that movie. So I went to the theater super excited, super excited, super ready to just love the fuck out of it, especially too, because like, I like Matthew Vaughn a lot. I think he's a great director and I'm excited. You know, I I was excited, very excited uh, at the prospect of him directing Man of Steel 2. So I walked in with nothing but positive feelings in my heart. And boy, was my heart broken by Kingsman, the Golden Circle. Um, to me, just in short, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna spoil anything for you, and I'm not gonna take up too much time here reviewing it. But you know, it feels kind of like Vaughn misdiagnosed the success of the first film. It really feels like he didn't get that what people really gravitated towards was the character of Eggsy and him being an underdog and and the cool dynamic between him and Harry, uh, played by Colin Firth. You know, people like the underdog tale of of Eggsy kind of rising from being like, you know, uh, street-level sort of nobody to becoming this James Bond-type figure. And, you know, people also love the sort of classic retro cool, you know, sort of espionage tale. It felt like... Connery and Roger Moore Bond era stuff. You know, at a time when the 007 films have gotten so self-serious, uh, Kingsman felt like a, a refreshing sort of move back towards what these kinds of movies used to be. Um, instead, it looks like Vaughn thought that what people loved about the first Kingsman was the very frenetic, very intense sequence at the church where Harry goes on that killing spree in the first film. Because uh, the whole thing feels that way. The whole movie plays at this, like, you know, the stakes are always very high. It's all very glossy and action-packed and very overly stylized. Um, but it really, like, it, it lost its heart. It lost what made it exciting. Uh, you know, Eggsy's no longer an underdog, now he's like just another one of these invincible Hollywood type heroes. He's always got the perfect specific gadget for all of these very weird scenarios that he's in. He never really seems to be in any kind of actual danger or peril at any point throughout the film. And all the, all the characters just feel very like one dimensional. Uh, a lot of the charm of the first one is gone. Um, yeah, it just I could I I I found I found myself sighing outwardly a lot, and at some point I looked over at my buddy Greg, and I I was worried that I was damaging his experience, uh, but then he looked at me at some point and just said, "Is it just me or does this really suck?" And I'm like, "Damn, okay, I guess it's not just me." Um, and we both just you know, but by the end of it, we were saying this shouldn't have been called Kingsman: The Golden Circle. It should it should have been called. Kingsman, because uh, that's what it was. It felt like a lot, like I, you know, I, I hate it when I'm watching a movie and you could almost hear the director in the background going to the audience, isn't this cool? Isn't this cool? Sort of like commenting on it because you could tell they're loving what they're putting on the screen. But, you know, sometimes that pays off, sometimes it doesn't. 
And for me, Kingsman the Golden Circle had a lot of that isn't this cool type stuff where you could tell Matthew Vaughn was having fun and, and, and uh, you know, embracing all of his wild whims. But a lot of what he threw on that screen for this sequel, just to me, it, it totally undid what made the first one so good. Um, you know, and that's the thing that happens a lot in Hollywood. People mistake what actually, what made, you know, what made a film work. So and then when they try to follow it up, they emphasize all the wrong, all the worst aspects of the first film. Mind you, I'm not saying that the Harry sequence at the church was bad at all. It was great. But it was great as a standalone moment in the movie. It, it stood out as a big, what the hell am I looking at sort of moment. But Kingsman 2 is filled with that what-the-hell sort of energy. And for me, you know, it's just, it's sad. I feel like he's pissed away what this could have been. Uh, he should have just kept it at the first movie if this was where he was going to go with it. And I know that, you know, he, he wants to make a third film. He's spoken about a Kingsman trilogy. And that, you know, that initially sounded very exciting because Vaughn is not someone who typically makes sequels. Um, so the fact that he wanted to make a trilogy and we were hearing about this for the last few months really made you feel like, wow, he must be very inspired. You know, there must be something about this Kingsman property that's got Vaughn tingling. Um, but if this is all he's got to offer now, if this is all he has to say now with Kingsman, I will take a hard pass on uh, a third film in this franchise. And I'm really like concerned now if he gets Man of Steel too. Um, all I'll say is if he does get the job, I hope we get X-Men first class Matthew Vaughn, not Kingsman Golden Circle Matthew Vaughn. But um, all right, so that was just a little mini tangent. Uh, this, number two in the box office this week is the film I'm going to finally get to see this coming Friday. It. Stephen King's It, Chapter 1, pulled in $29.7 million, another incredible total. Uh, It's finally knocked out of the top spot, but that's after three weeks. And $29.7 million is unbelievable when you think about what little this movie cost and the fact that it's rated R and the fact that it's a horror movie. Um, $29.7 million, Jesus. Uh, then in terms of, you know, so that's overperforming, right? Underperforming in third place is the Lego Ninjago movie. Ninjago, Ninjago, I don't even know how the hell to pronounce that. What a sad, sorry state of affairs it is for Lego uh, Ninjago, Ninjago. Uh, when you think about where this Lego franchise started for Warner Brothers and how it has dropped dramatically since... It makes you wonder, and that's the thing, I always thought it was weird that they were going to such a wide expansion with the Lego thing, you know? People, it seems to me like it's another case of misdiagnosing the success. I think people saw that the first Lego movie did incredibly well, so Warner Brothers thought, oh, people just love these Lego movies. We should just make all kinds of Lego movies now. But no, that's not what they loved about it. It wasn't the Lego property They got people excited about the Lego movie. It was the fact that it was this interesting sort of offbeat comedy, you know, where it appeals to kids because it's Legos, it appeals to adults who grew up with Legos, but mainly it sort of uses these Lego figures to tell an offbeat, more or less adult comedy. You know, it's a broad comedy that appeals to all ends of the spectrum, but it was like a quirky sort of ton-in-cheek quasi-satire of a film, and that's what made it work. There was a novelty to seeing like a comedic satire with, you know, that had some biting wit and some cleverness to it be acted out by a bunch of Legos. That was the appeal of that movie, not just simply making movies that had Legos in them. So just to kind of put into perspective for you, you know, uh, the first Lego movie opened to around 69 million. Then the Lego Batman movie opened up to something around 50 million. The Lego Ninjago movie opened to 20.4 million dollars. That is quite that is a third of what the first Lego movie did. Um, and you got to wonder now if you, if they had other further plans to make other types of little Lego spin-offs. 
Uh, I would put those on ice. Because um, listen, you know, this thing will probably make some money. You know, it's still, uh, you know, 20 million is something to sneeze at. We don't really know what the budget is as of yet, but, you know, uh, if we're going to look at what the other Lego movies have cost, let's look at them for, you know, just for the, for, for the sake of comparison. Uh, the Lego Batman movie, that film cost $80 million to make. The Lego movie cost $60 million to make. So you got to think it's going to be somewhere in that 60 to $80 million range. Uh, and you also got to assume that the Ninja Go movie will have some very nice foreign legs. So, you know, I think it'll make back its money, but this thing is starting to collapse in on itself, this little Lego franchise that uh, Warner Brothers was so excited about but is promptly pissing away. Um, in fourth place, there's American Assassin. This was in second place last week, the Lionsgate film pulled in 6.2 million that's a 58 million dollar drop uh the film only cost 33 mil- 33 million to make and worldwide it currently sits at 38.4 so it'll probably end up making back its money um it hasn't as of yet but you know you, you got to think it will it's a fairly low budget film and i still think it's a bit of a triumph for lionsgate since this is a movie that really had no business being in theaters it should have been a straight-to-Netflix thing. Um, in fifth place, we've got Mother. Uh, <laughs> Mother made $3.2 million for a... Uh, that's a 56% drop. The film currently sits at 259 So let's just call it $26 million. Meanwhile, it costs $30 million to make. Uh, this thing is going to be a flop. A definite unequivocal flop so that rounds out your top five there um on the subject of it um so you know, yesterday they announced when the sequel would arrive a lot of people are wondering about that you know with the film doing such bonkers numbers everyone is just logically wondering all right so when are we getting chapter two are they going to fast track it what is the deal it looks like we're going to be we're going to have to wait until uh, 2019. That's right, September of 2019 is when it chapter two will arrive. So we have about a two-year wait ahead of us. They have signed Andy Muschietti Muschietti to return to direct the sequel, um, and it's just interesting now. You know, there's. There's people are, are, are really, really, you know, taken aback by how well the film is doing. And it's it's creating some conversations that that some people uh, probably never thought they'd be having. Forbes put up an interesting piece I thought you guys would find interesting. At the start of this episode, I was talking about how, you know, can Thor Ragnarok and Justice League beat Spider-Man Homecoming? Well, over at Forbes, uh, writer Scott Mendelson is intrigued by the idea of maybe Justice League and Thor Ragnarok not being able to beat it, which would be unbelievable if you think about it. Um, I personally, let me just preface this by saying I don't think this is realistic. Uh, I do think that one or both of those films will be a bigger earner than it. But here's where, you know, here's uh, Mr. Mendelssohn's math over on Forbes. Um, He says he'd be shocked absolutely shocked if it ends up with less than 315 million dollars it currently sits at 266 million and by the way all of this is referring to domestic totals okay he i don't think he thinks it's going to make more than uh 875 million dollars worldwide because that's unrealistic but he's referring to domestically uh this idea that Justice League and Thor Ragnarok may not surpass it. So with that in mind, in terms of domestic numbers, uh, he thinks domest- domestically it's not going to hit, I mean, it, it's not going to uh, dry up until around 315. And like I mentioned earlier, both, neither of the, of the first two Thor movies even came close to that number. So he thinks Thor Ragnarok is a long shot to surpass that number. Justice League... Um, you know, it, it's, it's, if we're, if we're basing it on Batman v Superman, which stalled out at three thirty, then it's going to be an interesting sort of neck and neck race. 
Uh, if it, it whereas if, if Justice League does more like Wonder Woman, then it's not even going to be a conversation because Wonder Woman's at four eleven. Uh, that means it would wipe the floor uh, with it by almost a hundred million bucks. But you know, he's looking at other things. So he's looking at Batman v Superman, and he's looking at if it over you know, continues to overperform the way it is. And here's where I suddenly get a little bit like, nah, this is this is a stretch. This is an absolute reach. Uh, I have a hard time seeing it reaching 315, honestly. That would involve it take, you know, making another $50 million. I don't know if there's another $50 million left out there for this movie. Um, so I, I don't see that combination happening. I don't see it hitting 315, and I don't see Justice League making less than 315. So you know, I think that's a little pie in the sky. But... But a bigger part of his thesis, which I do agree with and that I do think is a notable sort of trend here for those of us who are following this industry, um, you know, he feels that the definition of an event movie is changing. Uh, I'm gonna, you know, this is a direct quote. Um, the definition of an event movie is changing to the point where folks want primal, iconic movies in a wide variety of genres. They want La La Land, Girls Trip, Wonder Woman, and It. They want event movies that are events as opposed to the week's designated fantasy action franchise installment. And that is what I find interesting here. You know, it's it's becoming more and more now where all kinds of movies are, are earning insane money. It's no longer just the big uh, you know, effects blockbusters. You know, for a while there, it seemed like if you wanted to do these kind of numbers, you had to have a big splashy movie with stars in it and and lots of capes and spandex on the screen and all kinds of explosions. But, you know, if you look at these other films, you know, it, it looks like people just want interesting movies. People are starting to throw their money at anything that looks worthwhile, anything that says, you know what, th th this is worth me getting up off my couch. I'm going to stop binging whatever Netflix show is on this week. I'm going to go and see this movie. Um, so the entertainment is becoming more varied, more creative, more interesting. And for years and years, people have complained that Hollywood is bereft of ideas. Well, if you look at some of the recent you know, hit movies, they've been definitely taking some risks and they've been definitely taking, you know, um, working out for the most part. Um, and speaking of risks... Uh, let's talk about one that didn't work out. Um, you know, also in the Stephen King mold. Uh, you know, earlier this year, Stephen King's The Dark Tower came out. And that did the opposite of it. Rather than overperform, that thing fell flat on its face. And people are wondering now, you know, and other people are wondering. It's pretty obvious why it didn't work. But Stephen King himself was asked what he thinks made the film suffer. Um, so what he had to say, and you know, let me know what you think of his quote here. But he says that the major challenge was to do a film based on a series of books that's really long, about 3,000 pages. The other part of it was the decision to do a PG-13 feature adaptation of books that are extremely violent and deal with violent behavior in a fairly graphic way. That was something that had to be overcome. Although I've got to say, I thought screenwriter Akiva Goldman did a terrific job in taking a central part of the book and turning it into what I thought was a pretty good movie. So, you know, and, and mind you, I agree. Uh, I, I've never read the books, but from everything I've been told, from every conversation I've had with super fans of the book, they say that it's a huge, sprawling, epic story. And it's hard to condense that into just an hour and a half movie, you know? And this thing always had an uphill battle. And it looks like it just, you know, they, 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 they thought they had a way to crack it that would make it interesting, and it just didn't. And that's where people can now start getting excited about the TV series. Now, there's been some confusion. Will the Dark Tower TV series be a companion to the movie, or will it be its own thing? And here's what King said about that. He said that the TV series they're developing now, we'll see what happens with that, it would be like a complete reboot. So we'll just have to see. 
So, you know, I, I'm sure that if the film had done huge numbers and it had actually successfully launched the franchise that they hoped it would, that the series might tie in in some way. But it looks like they really are. They're going to treat this like it is its own thing. So that's just uh, an update there for you about what else is going on in Stephen King land, since all eyes are on it. But, uh, you know, earlier this year, he was not having that great a year. Um, Also in the news, Avatar, the uh, James Cameron sequels, are finally entering production. Uh, They've begun filming, and as we know, James Cameron is planning to make four Avatar films, and he's shooting them all in succession. He's kind of Peter Jacksoning them. Um, Yeah, there's this story going around. To me, it's very like, this isn't a story, guys. Uh, There's a big story going around that the Avatar sequels to cost over a billion. You know, this billion-dollar figure keeps getting touted around. And I get it. People have like, you know, ooh, shiny object, billion bucks. But guys, that's that's really nothing special. That's spread across four movies. Lots of blockbusters nowadays cost 200, 250 million dollars. So if you divide, if you divide that billion by four movies, you're looking at four 250 million dollar movies. Now those are expensive movies, but that's not exactly unheard of. You know what I mean? So this whole, oh, they're going to be a billion dollars. Like, all right, that's, you know. Yes, if it was one movie or if it was two movies that were going to cost a billion bucks, that's a story. Four movies costing a billion, that's not a story. For me, the bigger question here, the bigger story is, will these movies find an audience? Now, listen, we all know I'm a huge James Cameron mark. I talk about him in very glowing terms all the time. Uh, and I'm someone who defends Avatar fairly routinely. I enjoyed the hell out of that movie. Um, even I, though, am having a hard time seeing four Avatar movies being a huge success. Um, you know, do I give him the benefit of the doubt? Because I, I typically trust him and I think he knows what he's doing. Sure. But, my God, four. Um, he better have an incredibly intriguing story or at least you know there better be a draw to these movies beyond the fact that there'll be a sequel to avatar um so that's for me that's like the bigger thing i don't know you know a billion dollars on four sequels doesn't wow me the question of will four sequels be able to make all that money back is the bigger question and i guess you know for now we'll have to wait and see uh you know the wait is going to be a little bit um you know right now it looks like the film is on track to arrive in theaters on December 18th, 2020. Then we know the next one will come out the following year in 2021. Then there'll be a bit of a break, and then they'll do the, the remaining two on, in 2024 and 2025. Um, yeah, this is, you know, it, it's incredibly ambitious of Cameron and company, but I'm, I, I'm sorry, I cannot help but be skeptical. Um, Speaking of like sequels and you know th- that are coming out to films that have came out a long time ago, uh, you know Blade twenty uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine is you know it's coming it's rapidly approaching, and you know I feel like it's going to be hard to gauge what we should expect from this film, you know because just earlier this year we got a, 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 the first real Alien movie from Ridley Scott. In, I don't know, what, over 30 years? Uh, almost 40 years? And, you know, Alien Covenant fell flat on its face. You know, it, it underperformed. It was not a huge success. And now we've got a sequel to Blade Runner that he's not even directing that I'm just, I'm curious how audiences are going to take to this. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be overly negative here. I'm very excited about it. Uh, I want to see it. I love Denis Villeneuve. I love Ryan Gosling. I love me some cantankerous, grouchy Harrison Ford, so bring it on. But, you know, it's, I, I'm, I'm very intrigued as to how this is going to play out. Um, there's a fun little quote going around right now from Gosling, though, about the script. And here's what he had to say. Um, I was fortunate enough to have gotten to meet with Ridley and talk to him about it first while he was writing it. 
So I knew that it was something he not only approved of, but was actively involved in. And Hampton Fancher, the original writer, what a name, the, the original writer was also working on it with him. So that was a good sign. And then they sent it to Harrison when they were finished. He loved the script. So all my fears were gone because who am I to say to them that this is not how the film should go? You know, they all felt that this is where the story would have led and I felt very excited to be a part of it. Now, who the hell can argue with that? Uh, I, I, you know, if you put yourself in his shoes, if Ridley Scott is involved and he's happy with where it's going, if the original writer, Hampton Fancher, is involved and obviously he's guiding the story and, and continuing what he had started, and then Harrison Ford, the star of the original, all sign off and say, this is going to be awesome, then, you know, why else, you know, why would you not also buy in? Why would you not also drink the Kool-Aid and think this is going to be awesome? So here's hoping it really is. I'm pulling for it. I need to rewatch the original Blade Runner in all honesty. You know, I only saw it once. I saw it, it's been over 20 years. So I'm going to have to definitely get, uh, you know, get a copy of some sort and sit down and watch it. If anyone has any advice for me on which version to watch, please send me that advice. Tweet it at me. Um, because I hear that there's like three or four different versions of it. So, you know, I would love to know which one I should invest in as I get all warmed up and primed up for 2049. And now we're going to do a little bit of a Harrison Ford uh, pivot here. Um, From Blade Runner back over to Star Wars and over to Han Solo. Uh, You know, I really... I've been talking about how unnecessary this Han Solo movie is for over a year now. Ever since they announced it, I was like, what the hell are we doing here? Um, and with with each passing week, I, I, I get more and more of a reason to just go, no, 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 stop it. Let's just move on. Please, let's scrap it. Let's, 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 let's chop it up and turn it into flashbacks for a, a, a better Han Solo movie down the line. Because I just, I can't. So, uh, I don't even know if I mentioned this last week, but, you know, last week there was all the news that Darth Vader is now set to be in the film. Um, I just, I can't, I can't, I, I just can't. Um, aside from the Darth Vader news seeming totally like a gimmick, totally like a ploy, um, Cinema Blend had an interesting take on what, you know, on some territory that they really shouldn't cover here and how it actually hurts the original films to be making this story. Um, you know, we know that Ron Howard did a little tease the other day. He posted a picture that looks like he's you know getting ready or he was about to film a sequence, you know, the Kessel Run, the famous Kessel Run that Han Solo references in A New Hope. Um... So Cinema Blend has a great point about this. He points out the fact that fans have gone back and forth about for years as to whether or not that was even real. You know, it it's it seemed like he was just pulling that out of his ass in the cantina to convince Obi-Wan to hire him. Um, you know, the, the biggest evidence for the Han is lying camp co- you know, comes from the fact that a parsec is a unit of distance and not time. And while some people have said that that's a, that's a plot hole, some people have said it was actually a give. You know, it, he was giving away the fact, basically, that he was just pulling this out of his ass just to try to sound impressive. And if you look at Obi-Wan's face when he looks at him in the cantina after Han Solo says that, it looks like really? You don't know what you're talking about. You know, it, and it's one of the playful sort of mysterious elements of the Han Solo story. I always kind of got the sense that he just really, you know, he wanted the job. He wanted the money. He's a bit of a con man. So I'm going to tell these guys I did something incredible so that they'll hire me. If this movie now is going to show the Kessel Run, it's going to definitively answer that question take away from some of the fun ambiguity of that is just one of the many ways in which like they are over explaining things 
Just like the what happened with the Star Wars prequels. You are over-explaining things that were just fun and interesting and worked as mysteries in the original trilogy. It's all right every once in a while to let the audience fill in the blanks and to interpret things certain ways. But now that Kessel Run thing, if it really is going to be in the young Han Solo movie, it is going to definitively answer what that was. And there goes that whole, you know, that whole undercurrent of Han Solo is just conning. He's trying to con Obi-Wan and Luke into hiring him. Obi-Wan knows better, but he likes him and he hires him because of his gumption. It's just one of the many ways in which I just wish this movie wasn't getting made. Um, I'm just over it. Uh, also, you know, in, in, in the realm of Star Wars, you know, uh, Mark Hamill recently celebrated a birthday. And he, the 66-year-old actor also, you know, he gave an interview to StarWars.com. Um, and they asked him about the famous moments, you know, how it was kept a secret. Uh, the Luke, I am your father moment from Empire Strikes Back. And, you know, he recounted a story that he's told many a time, but I kind of want to just remind you about it because it's pretty cool. And just in case you are unaware, this is one of those great little bits of Hollywood trivia that you could use to, uh, you know, surprise your friends with. Um, you know, the, the, the story is that only three people on the set knew. He, here's what he said. Here's what he said. They kept that line secret. I am your father. What was, what was in the script was already a fantastic twist. Vader, Vader says, you don't know the truth. Obi-Wan killed your father. And I played it just as you see it. No, and all that. But prior to shooting, they pulled me aside, and Irvin Kirshner, the director, said, look, I'm going to tell you something. George knows, I know, and when I tell you, you'll be the third person that knows. So if it leaks... Well, no, it's you. So that's how they kept it a secret. On the set, for all to see, Vader said a different line. He said, you don't know the truth. Obi-Wan killed your father. They added the I am your father in post. And up until that point, only three people knew about that twist. Um, so that's just a great little story. You know, I, I love all these little tidbits on how my favorite movies uh, were made. And I, I kind of want to throw in a plug, too, for Inside Psycho. It's another podcast. If you are into filmmaking, if you are into, you know, interesting moments in Hollywood trivia, um, you need to listen to Inside Psycho. It's only a six-episode miniseries. It's a standalone sort of thing. Each episode ranges from between, like, 25 minutes to 40 minutes, you can breeze through it in the span of a couple days on your commutes to and from work. And it's an awesome podcast because it gives you all this background on what went into making Psycho, on, on the fallout of Psycho, what it meant to Alfred Hitchcock's career, and all of the interesting industry norms that came from Psycho. Just to kind of like give you an idea, um, it was Psycho that it was like the that was the first film that had that closed set mentality. You know, by the time Empire Strikes came back, the closed set had already sort of become more of a thing. And nowadays, closed sets are all the rage. Where you you know everyone has to sign non disclosure agreements. You're not allowed to talk about the film's twists or the script without getting in severe trouble. You know, Psycho back in 1960 was the first film to have this extreme veil of secrecy where people had to make promises people had to sign agreements the 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 swerve at the end of psycho was so tightly guarded that it sort of established the precedent for what we know today with all of hollywood's secrecy and this one kind of threw me for a loop i didn't know that apparently prior to psycho the the idea of you know having to show up for a specific showtime wasn't really a thing I know nowadays that's just how we live our lives when it comes to the movies. Oh, I'm going to go see the 220, whatever the fuck. So I better get there for 220 or 215. Back then, you just showed up to the theater, you paid for your ticket, and then you walk in whenever you want. You go in and yeah, you'll see the the last half hour of the movie, then you'll just stay there and you'll and then it'll, you know, they'll start the film again. 
And then you watch it from the beginning. Hitchcock was so anxious about people seeing the twist and then not being interested in the rest of the movie that he like enforced this rule. It became this huge. You got to listen to the podcast to hear the lengths that he went through to make sure that people only saw the film from the beginning onward. That if they were late, they were not even allowed into the theater. And how that would eventually lay the groundwork for what we know today with these very sort of strict, regimented showtimes. Um, there's all kinds of stuff in, in it. So if you get a chance, listen to it. It's called Inside Psycho. It's got great storytelling, great filmmaking insight, great just trivia on this interesting time in Hollywood history. And it talks about one of the most brilliant filmmakers of all time who to this day inspires up-and-coming filmmakers. Check out Inside Psycho. But now, before we get into a little bit of DCEU fun, because, you know, I mean, what is an episode of El Fanboy without a little DC fun? We're going to boomerang back to Blade Runner 2049 for a sec, because I know I was very skeptical, but you know what? Hot off the presses, there are a bunch of responses to early screenings of 2049 that are flooding the web right now, so I would like to share them with you. Uh, it looks like we have a phenomenal movie on the way, folks. Uh, Eric Eisenberg of Cinema Blend says Blade Runner 2049 is phenomenal. Visually mind-blowing sci-fi with noir roots shining through in a tight, twisty mystery. Best of 2017 so far. Denis Villeneuve is unquestionably one of the elite working directors, and there's no excuse if Deacons doesn't win the Oscar. Then there is uh, film critic Jordan Hoffman, who says, Good news! Blade Runner 2049 is a terrific continuation and expansion of the original. Wasn't hoping for much. Ended up loving it. Uh, Joe Blow said, Our own Jimmy to the O calls... Blade Runner, astonishing, more than just a visual wonder. It's a groundbreaking science fiction masterpiece. Then Eric Davis from Fandango said, Blade Runner 2049 is a is sci-fi masterpiece, the kind of deep-cut genre film we don't see anymore. Visually mind-blowing, absolutely fantastic, and Stephen Weintraub from, uh, you know, that's Frosty from Collider, said Blade Runner 2049 is absolutely loaded with spoilers. He warns you. Even the plot of the film is a spoiler. If you're going to see it, avoid reviews. So that last one is just more so a, uh, uh, a warning about, you know, the whole thing is a giant spoiler. So try to walk into this knowing as little as possible. But those who have seen it say that we are in for a treat. So that is very exciting. Remember, earlier this year, I shared with you via the Splash Report some information that we'd gotten from early test screenings several months ago from a cut of the film that was like north of three hours long. There, there was some reason for concern at the time that it was sort of dragging and plodding, which is kind of a, a frequent issue with how Denis Villeneuve's films tend to test. Well, it looks like you know the, the new cut that is being screened is, uh, you know, they cut whatever fat was on there. They tightened the pace enough to get people very, very excited about this long-awaited sequel. And now that we're on the subject of test screenings and responses to them, another major film entered the test screening phase in these last couple of weeks, and that would be, of course, Warner Brothers' upcoming Justice League, the next installment of the DC Extended Universe. So, a uh, little bochinche, I've been asking around um, in terms of re responses to these test screenings. Uh, from what I hear, uh, the reaction amongst fans is, is, is fairly mixed. There are people who absolutely loved it. There are people who say it's no bueno. Um, and, you know, and, and, and you also have like the fans who didn't like previous DC films, but love this one. Then you have fans who loved the previous DC films, but didn't love this one. Something else that was sort of interesting um, is that apparently 
the, you know, there was a separate screening held just for Warner Brothers, an internal screening for the executives, and they are not excited. Um, I, I don't have any details to offer on that front, but I've heard uh, from someone very close to the production who I trust that the executives themselves are not exactly thrilled with uh, where the movie has ended up. But at this point, they are ready to just push forward. You know, there's only so much work that can be done. The film comes out November 17th. Um, and yeah, that's, you know, that's what I'm hearing. That amongst fans, the response has been you know, somewhat all over the place with emphatic joy, emphatic disdain, and that executives themselves were just left sort of um, unenthused, let's just say, about the current thing, you know, about the current cut that's making the rounds. Now, speaking of this current cut, there is reason to believe that certain major characters, well, I shouldn't say major characters, but certain characters who are major to DC, but, you know, maybe not in this movie, have been cut from the movie. Um, so now that the film is screening, people are quietly breaking their non-disclosure agreements and letting certain people know you know what they see, what they saw, and didn't what they what they saw and didn't see. I'm getting all my tenses all screwed up here. Um, so it looks like Lex Luthor is no longer in the film. It looks like Iris West is no longer in the film. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Iris West, she is uh, Barry Allen's love interest. You know, she's the Flash's sort of Lois Lane, if you will. And you know, she was originally going to be in the film. But now it looks like the character played by uh, Kiersey Clemens has been cut and left on the cutting room floor alongside Lex Luthor. Um, now, when I think about this Luthor thing, what I think happened here actually ties back into an old report. If you remember a few months back, it was rumored that Whedon was making some changes to the ending of the film. And some folks feel like, you know, that that got debunked. But really, it wasn't debunked. I think people just ran with the story the wrong way. So there were some folks who felt that Justice League was originally going to end on a cliffhanger. And that Joss Whedon was coming in to basically change that. And then someone from Warner Brothers came out and said, no, 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 it was never going to be a cliffhanger. That is fake news. But here's what I think is the real story. It's a much more sort of subtle, more nuanced version of the story. I think that Justice League originally was going to serve up Steppenwolf as an appetizer to Darkseid. And that while the film would have its own real beginning, middle, and end, there was other things going on, subplots occurring, that made it clear to the viewer that Steppenwolf is more or less a stepping stone. Dark side, and what I think Whedon has done is he's cut down on some of that subplot stuff to really make Steppenwolf be able to stand alone as as the rightful antagonist of this film, and not just step one that gets us towards Dark Side. You understand? And I kind of have a sense that Lex Luthor was going to be part of that because, as we all know, he's you know Jesse Eisenberg's version of the character is like the schemer. You know, all throughout Batman v Superman, he had this plot where he was speaking to so-and-so and so-and-so and connecting certain dots and basically weaving together this master plan that ultimately pitted Superman versus Batman. And we also know from the uh, ultimate cut that, you know, he's also the person who's kind of wheeling and dealing and trying to bring Darkseid's forces to Earth, that he's more or less how Steppenwolf ended up here. So I have a feeling that in the original version of Justice League, Lex Luthor was in a similar sort of role, sort of helping set the stage and get the ball in motion for Darkseid. But now that Whedon doesn't want to necessarily set up for Darkseid, I think that's why there's no longer a need for Luthor. Now, that's just my speculation, but that's just that that is the feeling I'm getting. Uh, I've been right about these kinds of things in the past, but I cannot say unequivocally that that's what happened. But I just get the sense that Luthor's subplot, he was involved in a storyline that was helping in the buildup towards Darkseid. And now that they want to sort of de-emphasize that a tad, 
and make Steppenwolf be the dude for now, uh, they cut it. And uh, who can really argue with that? You know, at this stage, I don't think anyone should be getting upset about who's been cut or who's been included. We got to wait until we see the movie. So all the fans who are freaking out that they cut so-and-so or whatever, let's just see how it pans out. Let's see how it pans out. But that, that was a big story last week when it was revealed that both Luthor and Iris West are out. Um, also in the DC vein, uh, you know, Jeff Johns got in on some of the Shazam hype. As we know, Shazam is going to be entering production pretty soon, and the director uh, has been posting pictures. Um, you know, David F. Sandberg has been posting pictures of an ever-growing stack of Coke cans, um, and you know, the, with with the the sort of subtext of it all being that you know this is how long it's taking him to write the script. He's drinking Coke and he's writing, and he's drinking Coke and he's writing, and he's prepping for the film. And finally, uh, last week there's a there's an image of Jeff Johns stand, you know, sitting in front of the stack of Coke cans, which has gotten pretty damn large, with a sign that says "Get back to work." So that's just kind of a fun little tidbit there. That uh, you know, DC's uh, having some fun promoting and, and showing the behind the scenes of Shazam a little bit. Um, we can only hope that Jeff Johns is also you know acting as an advisor. For this film, he know the man knows Shazam fairly well, so and Sandberg has been pretty outspoken about the fact that he did not grow up on Shazam or Captain Marvel or any of this sort of stuff. So, having Jeff Johns in the office, standing in front of the can, the Coke cans, hopefully implies that he's he's being somewhat hands on with the development of this film. And the last bit of news I'm going to be touching on today is the latest rumor. From the Uncharted movie, so you know, this movie's had a lot of you know ups and downs. It's been uh, it's been in some some stage of development hell for years now, but the current iteration has Tom Holland starring in the big screen adaptation of Uncharted, right? And the latest rumor is who's going to play his Sully, because we all know that Nathan Drake you know has a Sully, his mentor character, and. Um, you know, I love who's rumored to be up for it. None other than Brian Cranston, Walter White himself. Um, that would be great. I, I mean, I can picture it. I can picture Holland and uh, Cranston as being like uh, Marty McFly and, and, and Doc, <laughs> Dr. Brown uh, together. Not that Uncharted would be like Back to the Future, but I'm just saying like I could see a, a fun, interesting chemistry there with uh, young, wily Nathan Drake. And, uh, you know, uh, his is sort of larger-than-life mentor, uh, Sully. Um, and while, yeah, just while, while speaking about Uncharted a little bit, you know, it's... I wonder if we're ever going to get a good video game adaptation. You know, last year... I mean, last week, I should say, there was that trailer for Tomb Raider, which looks very sort of blah. Um, you know, I think I'm a little more optimistic for the film than, than, than most other people, but you know, it doesn't look like it's going to really uh, change the game in any way, shape, or form. And I still just re I remember the, all of the optimism heading into Assassin's Creed last year about thinking maybe video game movies were about to have for them what comic book movies had for them when like Christopher Nolan came in and suddenly made them very prestigious with the Batman Begins and the Dark Knight. Uh, it, it looked like we were, we were maybe moving into that sort of phase of things with video game adaptations where now people are going to take them seriously uh, as, you know, with, with, with great casts, with, you know, Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard and Jeremy Irons. And, you know, Assassin's Creed fizzled and then went nowhere. And now Tomb Raider looks like it's going to, you know, listen, I don't want to shit on it. But, you know, it just makes you wonder what's going to be the answer here. Because, you know, at, at times you could blame it on the source material not being properly mined, right? You know, when you look at Resident Evil, you know, the, those films hardly resemble the games at all. Um... When you look at that terrible uh, Super Mario Brothers movie from the 90s, it looked nothing like the video games. You know, they, they totally sort of bastardized it. Um, but then you have Assassin's Creed, which, you know, Ubisoft was very hands-on about. 
Yeah, I remember being on the set there at Pinewood and speaking to producer Frank Marshall and Michael Fassbender and uh, and director Justin Kurzel about how involved Ubisoft was. And if you really, you know, if you watch Assassin's Creed, you know, it feels like an extension of the games. You know, the mythology was was adapted fairly, you know, fairly accurately. You know, certain visual cues were changed and whatnot. But overall, Assassin's Creed was a faithful adaptation of the Assassin's Creed video games. So it's like, I, I don't think we can blame source material either. Because whether they're sticking to the games or not, these movies have had a hard time finding their stride. Even that, what, the Silent Hill movies. You know, the, they were pretty close to what the games are like, and they just couldn't really find an audience. So I, I don't know what it's going to take. I don't know what it's going to take, but, you know, this Uncharted movie, if they do sign Brian Cranston, and it does, you know, continue to have Tom Holland there in the lead, who was just so fantastic in Spider-Man Homecoming, maybe Uncharted could be the, uh, the great hope to try to turn this thing around. I, I really don't know. Um, and to me, it also pulls me into a conversation I've been wanting to have about source material, that people put way too much stock in source material in terms of, you know, basing whether or not a movie is good or not on how accurately it depicts something from a comic book or from you know, a video game or some other property. And to me, it's like, I think we're, we're, we're kind of getting, getting lost on, on that concept a little bit because source material is great just to give you, you know, the, the rough ideas so you could see, all right, this, you know, see what worked, see what didn't work and try to adapt it in a way that makes it work as a film because film is its own medium. You could do things in books that you can't do in movies and vice versa. So sometimes, you know, when people try to throw the Trump card of like, oh, well, you know, this movie was amazing because it recreated all of these panels from a, from a comic book that it's based on. Like, that means nothing. You know, did it, was it able to adapt it in a way that was interesting enough for anyone to watch it and love it? Or was it adapted in a way that only hardcore fans would love it? Because if that's all it is, then source material means dick. You know, I think the real secret, the real trick here is to be able to look at the source material of whatever it is you're adapting and find, all right, well, what is the root of this? What is it that we can glean from this source material that will then appeal to the widest group of audience members? That whether or not you've ever read that book, whether or not you've ever watched that TV show, whether or not you've ever played that video game, if you watch this movie... You will be entertained as a bit of standalone entertainment and not as, oh, well, this is just part of an overall thing. If I want to understand this, I have to play this or read that or see that. So, I, yeah, I know this, this is a little bit of a tangent, but, you know, the, just the, the source material issue comes up a lot. And especially when it comes to adapting video games to the screen or comic books to the screen. I just feel like we kind of need to let that go. It doesn't matter how faithful something is to the books. Like people like bring up Watchmen a lot. You know, the Zack Snyder Watchmen movie. Because, oh, it's just like the book, except for the ending. But it's just like the books. And he recreated this. But yes, okay, great. So if you were a fan of the book, you loved it. But what if you've never read the book? What if you don't give a damn about that book? Did you enjoy it? Based on reviews, based on fan response, no. So anyway, I, I'm done with that tangent. Uh, I'm ready to wrap this thing up in terms of entertainment that I've been ingesting that I could pass along to you guys. Aside from the Inside Psycho podcast, um, I've also been listening to Locked Up Abroad, which is pretty damn cool. Uh, I've been watching American Horror Story Cult. I'm, uh, I think I'm caught up on that. Um, yeah, that series so far, like the, the theme on this series, it's a little, uh, it's a little on the nose for me. I, I, I kind of like, I'm a little uncomfortable by how timely it is. It seems a little bit like, I don't know. We have, we have to let some of these things digest before we start commenting on them, I feel. But I will say that it has me very tense. Uh, all three episodes so far, I'm sitting there kind of just like, I'm not necessarily sick, um, not necessarily scared, I should say, which I usually consider a prerequisite for anything that says horror in the title. But I'm not, I'm not scared, but I'm definitely anxious. The writing, the performances, the subject matter, 
all three episodes I've seen so far this season of American Horror Story have me just sort of like on edge of like, oh God, this makes me very uncomfortable. What's going to happen next? Oh, I'm just, I, I just feel tense and sort of stressed out by it. Um, also still catching up on Ballers on HBO. Such a good series. Such a good series. Dwayne Johnson, man. Just killing it. Um, and I'm also, I, I, I started the Confession Tapes, that documentary series I mentioned last week on Netflix. Uh, I ended up, you know, starting to watch it later on last week. And I'm four episodes in, and it is brilliant. Uh, it's great true crime documentary. Uh, definitely check out the Confession Tapes if you're into that sort of thing. I also bought the new Foo Fighters album. Uh, and, you know, I saw Kingsman last night, and I'm going to be seeing it this Friday. I'm very excited about it. In terms of what's coming to the cinema this week, you know, I'm going to be keeping a very close eye on American Made. That is very high up there on my radar. And as of now, on the old Rotten Tomatoes, uh, it sits at 88%. You know, the new Tom Cruise, Doug Lyman movie, they had such a great, you know, they worked, they, they had such a wonderful collaboration on Edge of Tomorrow. And actually, look, I just refreshed. It's at 89%. It just went up. Two more reviews dropped in. So American Made looks like it's going to be damn good. It's been on my radar for a long time. And I'm probably going to try to see that sooner rather than later. Thankfully, my wife has no interest in it, so I'll be able to watch it whenever the fuck I want, unlike it that I've had to wait all these weeks to watch for the stars to align. I can see American Made at any given time. Probably going to try to get my dad and my grandfather together. It looks like a good, fun sort of guy movie. So I'm going to try to get my fellas together to see American Made. Um, going to be passing on Flatliners. Going to be passing on Till Death Do Us Parts. Going to be passing on Lucky and Super Dark Time. Yeah, really, in terms of what's opening this weekend, the only movie that I have any interest in is American Made. So I wonder how that's going to go. Um, and that's about it, everyone. Send in your questions, hashtag LFanboy, if you got them. As of now, Aaron Verola has been the only one taking me up on that offer the last couple weeks. So uh, thanks for bringing me your questions, Aaron. If anyone else has any questions, uh, please tweet at hashtag LFanboy. And please also write me reviews. You know, reviews are very, very helpful. You know, the I've still got the perfect five stars there on iTunes. I could definitely use more. Um, so thank you for everyone who has taken the time to, to write me a review, but keep them coming. If you have not done so yet, please just take like five minutes, jump on iTunes, and throw me some stars and some nice words, will you? But all right. Oh, and on a serious note, Tavo Borrego, if you hear this, let us know that you're all right, brother. Uh, Tavo lives in Puerto Rico, uh, like so much of my family does. And I know they are still reeling from the hurricane last week. Uh, millions of people are still powerless and un unable to communicate with us here in the States. I'm trying to do whatever I can to round up some, you know, some support here to try to fly over my abuela and my aunt and uncle and cousin. Um, if anyone else, if, if you're in Puerto Rico and you hear this, you're, you're in my thoughts I hope you guys, you know, I hope everything, hope the power comes back on, the resources become more plentiful, and we get through this nightmare sooner rather than later. Davo, if you, you know, if you're listening to this, I got nothing but love for you, man. I hope you're all right. And everyone else, until next week, adios. <laughs>